podcast giving a look at the latest in horror as well as turning to the best breaking talent the genre has to offer. I'm your host Scott Murphy and on this month's episode I talked to Canadian director Mike Peterson who film Knuckleball I saw at uh, Dead by Dawn and actually he did uh, a Q&A and was at Dead by Dawn across the weekend which is one of the things that we talk about in this interview. One of the many things that we talk about in this interview. We talk extensively about his movie, Knuckleball. We talk about future projects he come, that he has coming out. We talk about Canadian horror um, and the rise of Canadian horror, in the la- particularly in the last five years. Uh, and um, the roots of that and why that might be the case and why that scene has uh, built and his theory of why that the scene has built and yeah are we it's 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 a big one it's <laughs> the the longest interview uh, we've we've done yet but it's really entertaining um there was a couple of uh, kind of real life interruptions um in this interview one was uh, mike was uh, buying some tiles from a guy who started uh, getting a bit um, antsy with him. Um, Yeah, so you'll hear some uh, shouting and swearing from um, a Canadian tile guy. Um, And you will also hear some shouting and swearing uh, from my partner, Alyssa, who uh, did the theme tune, who was getting uh, angry at, at... uh, something not working um on the computer uh i did consider like you know just editing that stuff out just uh taking it out of the interview but um yeah i think it's uh, <laughs> you know listening back i think it's quite fun you know having that stuff in and just having it up there totally unedited you know totally unexplicated you know that's that's what we want in New Horror Express. That's what we're about. Um, so, yeah, you're going to be digging to this um, interview that lasts 70 minutes. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yep, it's a, a feature length interview, but there's a lot of great stuff there. And I really hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conducting the interview. And that's, yeah, that's all I want to say about that. So now we'll move on to my guest, Mike Peterson. Hi, Mike. Welcome to hey. New Express. How's it going? It's going well. It's, uh, how's it going over there? It's going uh, pretty well, thanks. The um, we just I, I was just at a theater watching a film that uh, I produced. 
a horror film with uh, Angus McFadden in it. All right. Your fellow Scotsman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's just being finished. What's the name so of that? What's the name? That one's called a, Alive, and it's by a director named Rob Grant. Okay. Who I've worked with a bunch in the past. And his films have, a couple of his films have played out your way for sure. Um, in the past, the film called Monami and uh, another one called Fake Blood. All right. Uh, one of which I produced also. Um, so we're just doing a final QC on that this morning. All right. All right. And is, is that coming out soon? Yeah, it, it should. It's just, they're just submitting it to festivals right now. Uh-huh. So hopefully we'll have some news to share in the next few weeks. You know, if they like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. That's, uh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Um, talking about uh, a movie you directed, um, your latest feature, Knuckleball, um, yeah. going at the Dead by Dawn Festival here in Edinburgh. And uh, you came across for that. And so what was your Dead by Dawn experience and, and how did you like our city? I, I really liked it. I went for a jog up by Arthur's Seat or Staff. Arthur's Seat, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. Arthur's Seat. That was great. Um, uh, the festival itself was was uh, really good. The fans were amazing. Sort of the, the two things that I noticed the most were one was the uh, the fans, uh-huh. the audiences were really great, knowledgeable, involved, um, and then the the next part was the the. The way they took care of the screenings technically was really impressive. Because um, you go to a lot of festivals and they, you know, for whatever reason, that some of the technical stuff gets overlooked and it's very hard when you're watching your own film and, you know, like a quarter of the, the picture isn't on the screen or the volume isn't right or, you know, whatever happens. Uh, yeah. And they just, they, they really took care of that, really cared about it, which I really appreciated. Yeah. It's... It's a festival that's, uh, well, I mean, that was his 25th anniversary and uh, I myself have gone quite a few times uh, and it's, yeah, they're generally very good in those terms and it is generally a very enthusiastic uh, crowd that you um, get there. Yeah, and you can tell Adele, uh, who runs the festival, really really cares about that. It's really important to her and it's just really nice that it, it's not just important to her, but you can see that she makes sure it goes down the line and Everyone's looking after this stuff. And your uh, your film Knuckleball um, got a, a really good response as well. It's uh, it was a lot of people's uh, favorite at the festival. There was, there was certainly up there in the conversation of the uh, best new films at the festival. Oh yeah, it was. Um, it's really flattering, right? Every time you show a movie, you never know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Um. And this film, like I wouldn't actually call this film a horror film exactly. It does have some horror elements in it, um, and it's got some scary moments film. in it. But I, I would, I was definitely making a thriller mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. a few horror moments in it. Yeah. Um, so for it to get, um, you know, recognized by the horror crowd as something that fits into that world was actually pretty cool. Um, because I think it does that. I mean, it does it more in sort of a, you know, a real life everyday sort of uh, scary way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing sort of really fantastical about it. It's sort of like, you know, just what would happen if a kid was, uh, you know, by himself and had to 
and to do with the against a predator. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like semi-realistically, what would happen? Um, so, so it's super. You know, it's like a horror film for a parent for sure. Yeah. Um, but it's not like it follows or something like that. It is uh, more straight up horror. Yeah. So I, I, I was pretty flattered that it got sort of recognized by that group of people, which it has been for the last few festivals. I think the Dead by Dawn generally have quite a, a broad view of horror and the, the crowd have quite a broad view of the, the umbrella of what's considered horror and what, you know, there's left field things that get shown there that are not you wouldn't necessarily consider 100% like this is a straight up horror movie, but it yep. does have enough horror to be like, this can be shown at a horror festival. Yeah. And there was a, uh, during the Q and a, there was that one guy who was talking about like Canadian horrors and American horrors and sort of mm-hmm. in general, you know, Canadian horrors always seem to be about the family. <laughs> like the yeah. family is somehow cursed or the family is somehow becomes a, like a place with that, with no safe, it's not a safe place. Yeah. Like the brood, and uh, I mean, you, it, there's probably a ton of exemptions for that. But I thought it was an interesting comment. I'm still kind of thinking about that one to see if there's, you know, a proper thesis to be made around that. But there probably is something in the cultural makeup that you know, yeah. you know, we use to deal with our anxieties through these yeah. things. There does, I mean, there's definitely something, something in that of it does tend to be more domestic settings rather than. Uh, more broader kind of uh, quite often either there's the, the Americans are like kind of straight up you know slashers and stuff things like that are straight up horror or the kind of more the more things about broader social issues uh, rather but the Canadians focus on the domestic quite a lot What's going on in the background there? <laughs> so yeah, controversy going on. Just picking up tiles. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, I'm running errands while we can do this interview, guys. So that was me picking up tiles from some guy that was swearing a lot because I was supposed to be here the other day and I wasn't. Uh, and he thought I was out partying or something like that. But it was really just at a meeting, and they closed early. Oh, well. Uh, but anyways, it's like it doesn't really matter. matter. Here, I'm just going to change. Yeah, no problem. Oh, there we go. You're on? Can you guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry about that. That was the transfer to the car. Yeah, no, that's fine. I can still hear you okay edit these things at all but if you do you can you know chop those weird little moments out yeah and i mean like i'm, um, I'm okay. the the ranting swearing guy you know my, my i might just keep that in you know just to see it's an entertaining movie <laughs> well i'll see it, it was strange it's it, it's i don't not, know who that guy is i don't pick up a lot of tiles so yeah I have no it's history. not the kind of material you get on every horror podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I made this uh, <laughs> this intro video. It, was, it, it played in uh, Denmark at Voting Weekend right before it played in Scotland. 
Uh huh. And uh, they wanted me to send an intro video because I couldn't be out there. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I filmed a video and I was with my kids on a little uh, trip out in the mountains. Yeah. So I was just introducing the film, talking about it. And then in the background, my one kid totally slips and bails and like wipes out big time. And I just go keep going like I didn't even realize it was happening. It was great. Anyway, sometimes you can't, you know, script that stuff. No, absolutely not. But you kept tripping on like a total pro, it sounds like. <laughs> For a bad dad. Well, yeah. One or the other. Sorry, I'll, 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 we'll get back on track here. Um, yeah. Did I answer that question properly? Yeah, I mean, we were just discussing that quite often that there's um, a kind of broader uh, social issues or, you know, or either that kind of straight up like people getting chased about in the woods in American horror, but quite often Canadians, it, it is a more domestic setting or that, you know. That's pretty cool, man. And I'm like, like Cronenberg's early films, speaking of that, because they're films that I, you know, watched and definitely had an impact on me. Yeah. Um, because there's not that many Canadian filmmakers to look up to. No. Um, and I was, I was reading The Economist the other day, and they used a, like, you know, they used a simile or a reference to represent whatever they were talking about of The Brood. Cronenberg's uh-huh. The Brood, which is not a fresh reference. No. You know, <laughs> like, not really at all. And they use it in The Economist. So I was just like, wow, that, you know, his work has really kind of gotten out there and sunk into the consciousness somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I, so whatever I, he was he tapped into it yeah absolutely and i think those those works seem to be in retrospect treated seriously now in a way they probably weren't when they were released i mean i suppose cronenberg's seen as this kind of auteur figure now particularly in his kind of latter more serious period you know the things like a history of violence and stuff like that but so now, in retrospect, things like Shivers and Rabbit and The Brood and The Fly and everything is kind of treated with a greater reverence in certain circles than it would have been at the time. Although, obviously, well, horror like fans have always revered that stuff. Totally. And I feel like, and I could be wrong in this, but it was either The Fly or Dead Ringers. It was one of those films that felt like that was the one that, you know seem to push him into the the more mainstream the, 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 yeah the broader con- conversation yeah um, and I could, I could be wrong about that but that's just growing up with it that's what I always felt like that's when other people started talking about him as a you know just a filmmaker not like this body horror guy yeah that, that, that's probably true I mean I suppose like the fly was really his big mainstream breakthrough because that, that came before Dead Ringers would be 86 yeah so um yeah that that seemed to be like as he got more mainstream acclaim from 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 that point yeah it's great movie i just watched it again recently it's fantastic yeah that i mean that's interesting as well because like you say there's not a massive amount of canadian horror back in the day but recently starting this podcast i've you, you're the third Canadian filmmaker. I've only done 
a handful of episodes so far, and you're the third Canadian filmmaker I've had on the show. I had a guy called Torin Langan who did a movie called Three Dead or Trick or Treaters, and I also yeah. had um, Gigi Saul Guerrero uh, from Luchagor um, on the show as well. And there's also like people like the Soskas. And there seems yeah. to be a lot of horror in Canada, particularly in the last decade. There seems to be loads of Canadian horror filmmakers. But yeah, and I think you're right. I don't even know if it's been the last decade. If it's been that, it might be like three years, five years. It's yeah, maybe, maybe even less. Maybe maybe like five years or something. Yeah, and it's these little pockets and like these almost these little regional pockets that are happening mm -hmm. here. Like my pocket is in Western Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and the people that I tend to work with are, you know, between Alberta and uh, British Columbia or Calgary and Vancouver are sort of the two ma main cities. Mm -hmm. um, and a little bit in Edmonton and sort of just through geography and, you know, and festivals, you run into these people and, you know, you run into someone from where you're from, you tend to have a beer together or something. Right. Um, and you just kind of create these connections then we've all been working together. So like I was talking about that film um, that I produced for that other director. He's also the guy that edited Knuckleball. He's a really good editor. Yeah. Um, and then the guy that did the behind the scenes on it, uh, we produced a film for him because he has made two other features and I had helped him develop his, um, his third one. And then my producing partner uh, was the main the main producer for when it went went up went went into production so we're we're ho hopefully there's a lot of cool cross collaboration and yeah just making each other better and helping each other get stuff made uh in a you know a collegial collaborative environment because i think we all just really love movies when it comes down to it that's what it's all about in the end isn't it is the, the creating things that you're passionate about and supporting things that you're passionate about. And, and you want to show off to your buddies a little bit, like when they watch it, you want them to be like, ah, oh, man, I, I don't know. I wish I'd I made that. that. But yeah. Or so, you know, those kind of things in a friendly way. of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I watch some of Rob's stuff and I'm like, Oh, that's a killer sequence. I don't think I would have done it that way. You know, that's probably way better than I probably would have done it. Um, and just, just those little mo those little moments are actually really fun. It, just the, the appreciation of each other's work. Yeah, yeah. It does seem. And hopefully, we're making each other better. Well, yeah, the that's I mean that's what they always say, you know, like steel sharpens steel kind of thing. You know, that's uh, the kind <laughs> that's of right. hanging out with the best will make you the get to the next level. So I don't know if we're the best, but hopefully we're getting uh, more well, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will keep trying, anyways. Absolutely. I was. I, I know you told this story at Dead by Dawn, but yeah, uh, I just want you to share it, tell it again for 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 the podcast because it entertained me so much. Um, so in Knuckleball, one of the stars of Knuckleball is Michael Ironside and how you met and then re-met um, I found <laughs> very entertaining so could, could you tell could you say again um, how you came across Michael Ironside <laughs> yeah and it's one of those stories that like it almost it, it sounds almost made up yeah yeah 
I, I was living in Los Angeles, you know, a dozen years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was doing an internship uh, for Ridley Scott and Associates, <coughs> RSA for their development company. And then doing odd jobs um, and trying to figure out how to make movies, essentially. So I was, you know, uh, a poor filmmaker living in L.A. from Canada. And I was driving my Alberta license plate truck one day down the road. And it was a late Sunday night or Monday night. Anyway, there was no traffic. It was just me. Totally dead street. I stop at a red light. And then this car is like a Jag or something like that pulls up. And this guy goes, hey, man, are you from Alberta? And I was like, yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah, I saw your place. He's like, I've shot a bunch of movies down there. I was like, shit, I'm, I know who you are. You're Michael Ironside. I'm a big fan. He's like, what are you doing down here? So I told him I was, you know, working on tr- becoming a director, or doing more directing. And we continued to have this conversation over, I don't know how many red lights it was, but the, the lights were in sync. So it was probably four or five red lights that we stopped and just continued this conversation side by side. We were the only two cars uh, in, you know, the middle of L.A., so it was about the coolest LA experience you could have. Uh, so I ended the conversation by saying, you know, I'm a director and one day I'm going to call you up when I have the perfect role for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, man. Give me a call. <laughs> you know. Um, so anyways, you know, a year ago, I called him up. I had a friend who had just worked with him. So I had his contact number uh, and I called him up and I was like, hey, I've got, I've got the role for you. I don't know if you remember when we met about a dozen years ago and I told you I was going to call you and he's like yeah I remember and he's like by the way it wasn't that street it was this street and it was this time of night and it was this kind of car and I was like fuck <laughs> you know he just went he's corrected the shit out of me and I was like yeah 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 but the gist of the story is the same right <laughs> uh anyways and then he loved the he loved the script thankfully uh and within mm-hmm. sort of 12 or 18 hours he'd call me back and he's like yeah man, I'm in I love this script this is great You've got something real special here. Uh, and we've sort of hit it off ever since. And, you know, since then, he's he's become a, a pretty good friend. All right. So you kept in contact after filming. Yeah. And that doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes it's just work. It's work with these people. It's professional. Yeah. You, you know, you finish the show and you say goodbye. And, you know, you can't really force a relationship. No, absolutely not. Well, so uh, him and I just really clicked. And he was really instrumental in sort of, you know, reading the script very thoroughly, telling me his thoughts on, you know, character arcs and things like that. Some of those ideas I definitely, you know, adopted. Yeah. Uh, and I think overall he was just a really great collaborator and I'm going to work with him again, I think, on one of these upcoming projects that, I've, that, I'm, that I'm putting together. All right, all right. And he doesn't, in the film, he doesn't necessarily play the typical Michael Ironside role, even though he's still Michael Ironside E in terms of his, his <laughs> yes. and you know <laughs> presence. Yeah, his presence is definitely of Michael Ironside. Um, but yeah, no, he's not sort of the hard man or the the heavy, which he usually is. Yeah, some kind of you know guy that you know is gonna try to step on you somehow. Um, he does not do that. No, he's sort of the rough, the the, the rough-hued or rough-edged grandfather that pro- that seems to have a softer interior once you get past that. Yeah, seems to have like a, a good intent, 
it comes almost like a mentor figure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, which is, you know, in the context of the story, not all good. No. You said it was the character was somewhat inspired by your own grandfather, is that right? <laughs> yeah, my grandfather was a pretty, um, not like a super warm guy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he would, um, for example, I've got uh, four brothers and sisters. <laughs> so he'd come and visit us. And what he'd do is he, he, he had his favorites and you definitely knew who, who, who you were if you were them. So oh. he'd see me and my, my brother. He'd be like, oh, Michael, it's so nice to see you. And like, give me a big hug. And then he'd see my, my brother and he'd be like, you look fat. Come over here. Mm-hmm. And then he'd like twist his arm behind his back until he started crying. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he, he, wasn't, he was like a very uh, you know, complicated mm. person that probably wasn't the nicest man alive. Yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. I mean, well, uh, you know, uh, yeah, lots of people are, are complicated. And um, I suppose if you're of an older generation, it's, you know, a lot of older people are like grandfathers and stuff. It's um, n- not necessarily super warm. Um, in, in a lot of cultures, I think. Yeah, and it, it, that's totally true. It could be generational. Um, I, I think he was a little bit prickly, though. Right. right. Okay. Going back to the film, how did the story? Would how did you come up with the story? What was the inspiration for the story? The beginning of it was uh, just all the fearful things that all the fearful thoughts you have when you have a kid. Yeah. So you've got a kid and you're always worried that you won't be able to protect them. Um, or yeah, you just won't be, you won't be able to protect them. So it started with that. Um, there's a couple stories that I have sort of inspired by those types of ideas where, you know, you basically can't help or protect your child who would benefit from it. Yeah. So, you know, just thinking about what would happen if, you know, my one boy was on, on his own. And then I wanted to deal with that in a semi-realistic way. My gra- my grandfather also had a farm when I was young and we used to go out there once in a while. So it definitely made me think of that because there's always this weird place that, you Is know, quite isolated, like, like isolated and just like, it just has stuff on it that you don't find around your house living in the city you know there's like mm-hmm. just just weird stuff like barbed wire and you know just weird stuff that knickknacks and whatever you need on a farm to make it make a farm work yeah it's just very foreign as a kid right when you're a city kid. Yeah, absolutely <clears throat> but it's also kind of interesting and cool and it you know it, you're very curious about it and you explore it <clears throat> so anyway that, i wanted to do that so i was talking with my writing partner about it um so we started with that home alone i mean was obviously uh, a reference i don't think it's as hard a reference as you know it might appear but i don't think you can make knuckleball without at least you know recognizing that uh, that um that home alone exists 
Yeah. Like you have to, I, you can't pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you gotta, you gotta reckon with it on some level. Yeah. <coughs> I was intrigued actually. Have, have yeah. you, there was two films that came out last, late last year. One was called Better Watch Out and the other one was called The Babysitter that also had like a heavy Home Alone uh, horror thing. But they, they were both more comedic and they both, were more 80s tributes than your film. Your film was m- much darker and uh, much more semi-realistic. These, I was just, I was just wondering if you'd seen either of those. I've seen Better Watch Out. I haven't seen The Babysitter yet. Um, I watched Better Watch Out about a month or so ago, and I knew about it probably six months ago. And I didn't want to watch it until I was kind of yeah. 100%, you know, done just just in case. Um, and then when I watched it, I was like, wow, these movies aren't really, you know, there's probably some surface similarities, but very few. And other than, you know, the kind of a kid on his own in a house. Um, yeah, that's really the only kind of link. You know, I, there, before there isn't much. It, sorry, you go ahead. I, I was just saying there isn't much that, you know, that they have in common really at all. No. It, it uh, and it was actually just that home alone uh, element but like i say both of those films have much more in common with each other your your film it's totally different tonally and totally different in terms of realism <laughs> well they, like two of the movies that i watched when i was you know thinking about the visual style and tone and stuff like that mm-hmm were The Shining um, and Let the Right One In. Right. And Let the Right One In, man. I, like, that movie is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's, it's, it's such a strange film, but it's so well done. And just the, the brevity of the shooting is just, like, excellent. Um, the Shining is The Shining. You know, we all... Yeah. You, you know, you can't... Everything's been said about it, probably. Um I think, yeah, I, I think it has been analyzed from every direction. And, <laughs> the, you know, the, all the articles and essays and that, that movie, the, the room, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, Room yeah. 237, that has like a kind of compilation of every conspiracy theory and every analysis of The Shining in that one documentary. Yeah, I have seen it. <laughs> Um, but but those two films would be would be references. Those would probably be stronger references than Home Alone itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Let the Right One, I don't I don't think I got too close to Let the Right One in in terms of the you know, and I'm talking about the Swedish one, of course. But the I don't think I got that close to the visual style. But I think there is a certain seriousness and uh, hopefully a brevity in the shooting style. Yeah, which fun- functions similarly to that film without being, you know, a direct sort of a direct ripoff or anything like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I would agree. I would agree. There's, I mean, now you mention it. Yeah. I can, I can see those, I can see those influences uh, seeping through and I would say there's a, a similar uh, brevity uh, to it, to the film. And yeah, it is rooted in a kind of realism that's it's quite good. I also thought it was very good the way 
it seemed quite natural in terms of I've seen a lot of horror films and thriller films that do the thing where they can't really contact the outside world or the mobile phone dies in a really clunky way, but that seemed that isolation seemed to come quite naturally. It didn't seem clunky in any way. Oh, cool! Thanks. Yeah, um, and I, well, the other thing I was hoping that the phone did was um, sort of create a, sort of an urban or a, sort of a modern culture around the kid and just the way he, you know, operates with it. If he had that oh. phone, he'd be, have a whole bunch of other tools available to him besides just phoning. He could, you know, check out YouTube videos or whatever else right absolutely um, but just taking away one of those like city kit tools and he's got to reckon with whoever's there on their terms essentially that was also interesting that was another interesting story the story of how you got the lead uh, child actor luca velasquez i think it's velasquez velasquez I think it's how you pronounce it. Or at least that's how I've been pronouncing it. Okay, I'll go with that pronunciation, Velasquez. That's, that's fine with me. Um, but that was, that, was, that was an interesting story. And he's really phenomenal for a 12-year-old. It's really mature performance. He's, he's kind of got the film on his back. He's, I mean, he's in most scenes. <clears throat> yeah, and I think there's something to that. I think he makes it look, look easy. Um, cause I don't think, I don't think you notice that basically this kid is carrying the movie, you know, it never comes up because I don't think there's any stress on him in terms of Whoa. that responsibility. So I think a lot of people, when they watch it, they take it for granted that, you know, basically you're asking a 12 year old to carry a film, which is not an easy thing for anyone, but even less so for, you know, a kid Terrible. and to hold it, to hold that, hold that sort of, uh, you know, gravitas for, a for an adult audience, which is also something that, you know, I wanted to make sure that I, that I've dealt with, because if you don't have that, I think you're lost. I think you've lost your movie before you even started. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember you saying that he seemed pretty unfazed by all the kind of horrible things that were going around him. That kid was amazing. I mean, that kid is amazing. <clears throat> he just like, like the first, the first time I talked to him on the phone, it was like, I was interviewing, you know, I was like a stockbroker or a banker interviewing someone for a bank job. Like he was just so professional, and like way more together than I was probably, you know, and I was supposed to be the guy directing this thing. And this kid's just like, you know, almost could be wearing a suit and have a briefcase with him. Like he's just that together. Um, and, and while he was while he was uh, making the movie, I know he'd go home and watch The Revenant every night. <clears throat> For whatever reason, that was something that you know, you know, fed into his yeah. acting somehow. <clears throat> um, and I, and you know, that's not really a kids' movie. No, it is one hundred percent not. I mean, I suppose and, it's it's wintry and it's it's about survival. So I can <laughs> yes. see where he's coming from. But yeah, he was like, oh man, uh, you know, what's his name? The, the, DiCaprio and that is so DiCaprio. good in this part and blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, wow, man, I, I watched it once. I certainly, you know, didn't pull all that out of it, but that's really cool that you're able to watch a film and, you know, get so much inspiration from it. It's really impressive. <clears throat> but he was like that for everything. Like even, <clears throat> even with the stunts, we had a stunt double 
-hmm. and and Luca would he would just be like no I want to do this I want to do this stunt <clears throat> no one's going to do this stunt for me I think I should do it it's fun I want to do it and I'm like but well, it's super cold out we have to do it like five times probably he's like yeah no problem I'm ready because the, the kid was like just he was great That's and he just like also like a really nice person yeah. both him and his uh, father just like real normal nice people like just seem to have you know the right sort of values I guess or whatever you want to call them it's I, that's yeah that is incredible for a, a kid that young to be um so on the ball and so uh, insightful it's yeah amazing yeah we definitely got lucky but you can't make the movie without the kid so the kid is kind of oh, most important pretty part. vital yeah the psychopath who's up against the kid is played by Monroe Chambers and again like Ironside um, playing somewhat against type yeah <clears throat> the um I think I do this without knowing it but I think that I somehow like to make people that are uh somehow really likable mm -hmm. uh into bad people <laughs> um on my first feature I did that the villain was uh there's a tv show called Trailer Park Boys I, yeah, um, I, I'd say that. Okay, so the, the most popular character on that show is a character named Bubbles, and he's sort of like, you know, a cat-loving, pot-smoking, ne'er-do-all, like all of them, but he's yeah. sort of like the Kramer of the show. Everyone, everyone kind of loves that guy, right? Yeah. Um, so I made him the villain in the last one, and, and I think it's just something I do subconsciously. Just, just want to make good people bad. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but there there was a rationale for Monroe. Uh, when I watched Turbo Kid, uh -huh. there there was um, that character has such a really great uh, innocence in his portrayal, like yeah. a childlike innocence. And to me, that was a key element of the character for uh, in this movie for Dixon, <clears throat> because it, it, in a sense he's more of a more of a injured child than the you know the, than our lead child. So he's he's much he's very innocent and childlike in his own way, even though he's an adult. He's been stunted somehow developmentally, yeah. emotionally. Yeah. I mean that I mean that comes across especially early on. One, I don't want to give too much away, but there there is a scene where it's the the kid and uh, one rose character just sitting down in his house. And, you know, you don't know whether to kind of have sympathy for this character or to be wary of this character because he might be dangerous. And that's, that's a very interesting scene. Um, so there is a definite, you can definitely see the kind of childlike innocence within this character, even though it's a psychopathic character. Yeah, and he's just like, you know, because he was like love was essentially withheld from him growing up. He just doesn't know how to cope with stuff the way that, you know, you or I might. Yeah. Um, so his go to is not the same as ours might be, you know. Um, and like there's a, a line, there's sort of a, re a refrain in the film where we see all these characters who orbit Michael Ironside's character. 
sort of parse out the the life advice that he's given given them and it's all the same life advice but they all sort of remember it slightly differently right yeah <clears throat> um so we hear his version of it and it's like he's even this he's fucked up like he just can't he just can't even that he can't like quite get yeah. right it hasn't been given to him properly like you know what I mean? Like this, I poor, guy, this poor guy has been just—he's—he—he he is always a terrible person. He's—he's he's, uh, a victim for sure. I mean, they all are essentially. Yeah, for for sure. I definitely agree with that. We talked a little earlier about um, David David Cronenberg and him being an an influence on you. Um, I was wondering what other main horror influences or just influences generally on your filmmaking because i i know you've done a lot of different things not just horror films but documentary shorts and you've produced things and you've done various things the um yeah there's a it's pretty diverse um sort of one of the filmmakers i all have I've, I've always admired greatly is uh christoph kislowski <clears throat> And there's just, and, and again, it goes back to sort of the brevity of storytelling mm -hmm. that he's able to achieve. Like you can, he can, he can sort of tell, you know, a part of the story in three shots, which I think myself included, and most people would probably take five shots to just yeah. know, tell you, tell you what he wants you to know. And there's just something really beautiful about, about that efficiency. Right. It's just like, yeah. it's sort of like mastering the craft and the language. Um, and, I, and I've always admired, like, just, just really admire that. It's just so cool when you see it. You're just like, wow, you know, I just got told this. And sometimes you have to catch up to it. Yeah. So you're not even sure what you're being told until, you know, you see the fourth or fifth shot. And then you realize what has just happened. And you're like, holy smokes. Um, <clears throat> but other than that, you know, it's probably fairly typical. Like, Time Bandits is a film that I grew up watching a lot. Um Kurosawa, uh, especially the film High and Low, I've always really, really liked. All right, um, that, that's a bit that's a bit left field. It's not just you know, yeah, I know. You know, <laughs> like, they, I mean, it, good film, a, a very good film. It's just um, you, obviously your kind of typical ones are, are things like Seven Samurai and Ran and um, things like that, Throw the Blood, things like that. Yeah, and those are all great movies. I love them, but there's something about high and low, especially the, I, I love the premise of it, uh, where it begins and the guy's got the phone call. Yeah. That the, the kid's been kidnapped and he thinks it's the lower, you know, the, the lower status guy's kid and he's, you know, being a hard ass. Yeah. And then he, then the lower status kid's kid walks into the room and he's like, fuck, it's not that guy's kid. It's my kid. And it's like, oh, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. What you know? It's, they're just really, really cool little moments in that that film. Yeah. And it, I guess it's sort of like a serial killer film. Yeah, I, 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 I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and like M is pretty phenomenal. Still, that's a movie I'll still watch every every so often. Yeah, I mean, for a movie that was made in the early 30s, it still holds up really well. And it's, like, dark as shit. Like, it's yeah. crazy dark, man. Like, that guy's, a ch at the very least, a child murderer. Yeah. Um, but probably more, right? Which is pretty nasty. 
Um, and I think that's that's got to be pre-code, wouldn't it be? Um, yeah, 30, 31. So, yeah, probably. I, I think so. I, I can't re- remember exactly when the code came in, but I think it is pre-code. But, you know, it's just like it, there's so much uh, sort of just below the surface in that that they, is never said, but it's just like there's a lot of dark, dark shit in here. It's so dark that the criminals in that world don't want anything to do with this criminal. Yeah. But they will all cooperate and be like, we're going to get this guy because he's given us a bad name. You know, the, like you say, there's a lot of things in that movie that are left unsaid that are in the shadows that you, you but you know, it's just horrible, horrible shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then <laughs> the thing is pretty, <clears throat> the thing is always an amazing film. Um, except for the very, very beginning of that movie <laughs> with the flying saucer or whatever. Or oh, yeah. That part's a little stinky, but it's such a good movie otherwise. Yeah, that, the, I, I do agree with that. <laughs> it's, there's something a little bit cheesy about that opening, but it's still one of probably my top five horrors, I would say. Oh, it's so good. And the like the affectionate feel like it it doesn't feel sensational, even mm. though it's crazy sensational. Like the whatever those monsters are, those hybrid hybrid beasts. Yeah. <clears throat> it doesn't feel like super sensational, even though they're like you know out of nightmares. It somehow kind of really fits right in the world. Absolutely. And again, the talking about things holding up it is amazing that those, you know, because everything's CGI now or most things are CGI now. It is pretty cool that those effects still look really cool. They don't look you know, cheesy or outdated or anything like that. They're they're still effective. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I don't know, man. When that stuff's done well, it works great. Like um, those guys from Astron 6 or whatever that did The Void. Yeah. Um, like those guys are kind of holding up that that those practical effects and sort of building their films around them, I would assume. <clears throat> but they just work so great when you have a team that actually, you know, really enjoys making that stuff and just gets it. Uh, I, I absolutely. There's um, they they do really good practical effects. Um, the, the Astron Six guys, I've seen a few of their films, and I was. The Void was actually showing it Dead by Dawn last year. And I also really liked the Father's Day, which was a kind of grindhouse. Right. And, <clears throat> yeah, um, there's some more Canadian people making. Yeah, I was, just going, I was just going to say that's, that's another example of Canadian horror really growing in the, like, the last you know, five years or so. You know, it's, it's, I think, yeah, Father's Day was maybe like, 2011 or 2012 something like that and yeah there's this seems to be like a real burst of canadian horror filmmakers <coughs> yeah and I, you know i wonder if uh, the fantasia film festival has anything to do with that i would assume it has some impact on that yeah um in the, in the last uh, uh maybe six or seven years they've started a market there right yeah. So it's, uh, I, I would, it's probably the only real mark, like real, you know, official market activity in Canada uh, for film uh, yeah. with the focus on genre stuff. 
So I bet that's had a, I bet that is, that is, that is one of the influencers in sort of, you know, getting Creating us guys that are, yeah, no, like, cause I think we were all making this kind of stuff. Like, you know, I made a ton of short films before this and half of them were, you know, sci-fi with, you know, some kind of thriller or horror element, sometimes also comedic as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, those, that was a space we were all, we were all probably playing in anyways, but then we get a chance to sort of, you know, play it at a festival like that locally, um, where it can actually have a, you know, essentially a market impact, which you eventually need to have if you're going to keep making movies. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it does seem to be, yeah, it does seem to be, yeah, like a lot going on, particularly around uh, Vancouver. That seems to be one of the kind of places that um, in Canada that seems to have I've noticed a lot of horror coming out of. Yeah, Vancouver's a little bit, uh, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be less communication with Vancouver than there does with Toronto. Yeah. Or Montreal, yeah. And I don't know why that is. It might just be a little clickier or something like that. I'm not sure. A little bit more closed off. Because it does seem to be centralized around like certain big cities that the, the, the filmmakers... I've seen coming out of Canada, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, I know a bunch of them in Toronto, a few of them in Montreal. Vancouver, I know maybe one or two, um, which, you know, it's the closest other big city to where I'm at. So you figure that might be the place where there'd be yeah, a little bit more dialogue. More. Yeah. yeah, but it just isn't the way it is for whatever reason. That's curious um, uh, that they're in more of a bubble. That's yeah. yeah. Well, most of the work, the most of the film work that happens out there is uh, is to service American TV shows or movies of the week. Yeah, or, I, or big big studio films. Yeah, I, I I've noticed that there seems to be a lot of um, American TV shows that film in British Columbia. Seems to be a yeah big place you can identify them after a while <laughs> can, you, can you like tell like the towns and stuff that are like in different tv shows like oh yeah so i've been there yeah you can you can also tell by usually like you know number whatever five six seven eight on the cast list too um because there will be because you, you kind of know the vancouver's that live in live in the or the actors that live in vancouver Oh right, I see. I see. So you tend to see these faces, you know, over over and over again in various shows, and you know, this the secondary roles. It's, a, it's a, an interesting insight into Canadian filmmaking. Um, <laughs> so, um, what are your uh, future projects uh, coming up? What what have you got in the pipeline? Falling uh, knuckleball, or are you still just uh, touring uh, festival wise with knuckleball? Is that what you're up to? <clears throat> we're still doing, yeah, we're still doing festivals with knuckleball. So the next ones that I uh, can talk about are uh, Fantaspoa, which is in Brazil, um, which is a big genre festival down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get to go to Fantasia and screen it there, which is always a delight uh they they were big uh supporters of my first feature film so it's always kind of feels like a homecoming to go back there yeah um and they've just been really supportive of me as a filmmaker in general um so that'll be a really cool way to 
probably close it out for for North America. It's supposed to come out sometime in September uh, in the U in the U.S. and Canada, and then I don't know about the rest of the world. And hopefully, we'll have a few more festivals uh, in between there, and then a couple more in Europe. Um, future projects or in the pipe there's uh three features uh i was a producer on these and like the the, the one there's a alive is a horror film rob grant directed it He's, um, <laughs> what's that <laughs> that's it's uh, uh, just uh my uh, girlfriend is uh, working on the, the other computer we have in the living room and uh, it's obviously frustrated by something. <laughs> this is all the, so many little uh, slices of real life cutting in. <laughs> I know. We, it's just, <laughs> this is the most real episode of the podcast. <laughs> we got the tile guy. We got my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All guys got a body mouth. <laughs> the, um, the, the stuff, the stuff in the pipe is we got Alive, which is a horror film that's just yeah. about to enter the festival circuit. We just did a QC today. Uh, there's just you know a couple little things you got to correct that happen uh, when you're outputting projects. Uh, that one was directed by Rob Grant. I on that one I was Angus McFadden's stunt double. Uh, I was a producer and I shot some D camera. And actually, a lot of my stuff got in there. I was very happy about that. Um, so I get was like a you know a boss smashing my face, and I get thrown off a cliff, stuff like that. It's really fun. <laughs> um, and then we pretty cool. Is that is, yeah? It was. Is there any um, dates coming up for in the UK for that, um, or any festival appearances? This nothing. Year? Nothing to announce yet. Um, but we should know within uh, within the next few weeks. Sort of where 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 it'll premiere, um, and then we got and then I produced another film by Rob Grant that uh, I don't know what the fuck this movie is, but it's a he's a really good filmmaker, um, and we sort of jump around genres, so it's got a bit of thriller, a bit of comedy, a bit of horror. Um, that's <laughs> a weird one, but it's really fantastic. What's the title movies. of that movie? Dude. That one's currently called a boat movie, and Monroe Chambers is also in that one, uh, and then a couple of U.S. actors. It's a, it's essentially three people stranded on a boat. Uh, so we filmed that in Calgary. The interior is in Calgary in the winter, and then we went to Belize and shot the exteriors on a boat. Which wow. is a pretty nice nice way to spend a shoot. I, so my I can office, yeah. So my office was a was a beach bar, and the boat was about forty feet away. It was pretty great. <laughs> that's that's that sounds like the the best sort of filming. Yeah, the problem is they don't happen often enough. Um, the and then we've got another horror by a filmmaker named Braden Croft out of Edmonton. Um, and uh, my partner was the lead producer on Julian Black Cantaloupe. Um, and Braden's made a couple, a couple of. Uh, Horror features. One, the the most popular out of the two was a film called Hemorrhage, which came out about seven years ago or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I met him because my first feature and his sort of toured a bunch of festivals together. What was the title of, of that film? That's that, that's. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that one's the... called True Fiction. True Fiction. Yeah, and we're just cutting it. All right. Just being and cut. Are these, are these... Uh, 
are these planned to be released uh, later this year or next year? Yeah, they should both be done within the next three months sort of thing. Three to four months. They should do you have any do you have any directorial projects coming up yourself or is it just the, the producer ones? No, I got two projects that I'm really excited about. <clears throat> one is a, one is a, it's essentially a thriller that takes place on a Mars colony. All right. Um, that's, you know, it's almost like a stage play with eight, eight, eight actors stuck on Mars essentially. Um, but they're not, you know, eight, eight, Mar eight colonists stuck on Mars. Yeah. Uh, someone dies and they find out that person was murdered and it's got to be one of them. All right. So it's a, kind of uh, a bit of a whodunit thriller. Yeah, exactly. Um, in a, you know, in a, an environment that's very unfriendly and uh, they know they're stuck there for the next eight years or so. No, no escape. No escape, man. So they have to figure out, you know, what it is and then possibly who, who it is and then what to do about that. Um, well, you're not scared then, by the Hollywood hoodoo of uh, setting your film on Mars and the amount of films that are set on Mars that have failed. Is there a lot? I've been watching some. I haven't gotten a ton. Um, well, there's not a it, massive amount. I think there's just like, I think it's just because the, the, the John Carter film was a, a disaster and then there was like red planet <laughs> and mission to mars which were disasters i so i think there's only like a couple but there, there seems to be a thing in hollywood of not wanting to set films on mars anymore oh that's a good point i have seen all those movies um the you know <clears throat> this is more about the 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 mystery and the thriller aspect of it so it actually could be it doesn't really matter what planet it's on it's just a fucking planet where these people are stuck and there's no way to communicate or they, they have to deal with shit themselves. Um, <clears throat> so I could change it to, you know, planet X. So, or so, Y. Yeah. Or Z. Or whatever. Sure. I don't want to put you off at being on Mars. It, just, it, just, it was just a thought that, that, that came up. We, you know the effect that'll have on a filmmaker. They'll be like my. You'll just be so. You'll be arrogant and you'll be like, if I'll be the one to break that curse. <laughs> right yeah 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 somebody's got to do yeah. it somebody's somebody's got to yeah. make the, the the breakthrough mega successful mars movie so why not you why not me right so it's you know cool. that's the ego ego of the filmmaker you're gonna that's where you're first gonna go you'd be like well i'll prove them wrong so thanks you put me into that headspace now um and then the next one is uh uh i don't even know what it's got, I guess it's a revenge story. <clears throat> it's like a, it's written by these two UK guys that are really fantastic writers. Um, and it's kind of got the feeling and flavor of a gangster, like a British gangster film from the nineties. The kind of, yeah. I don't know why it reminds me of like, not the, like before the Guy Ritchie stuff where it became a little bit more comic booky. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and they were sort of like a little darker and nastier, like gangster number one and stuff like that. Even like the the long, uh, what's that? The, the long, long Good Friday, the one Long Good Friday, like, yeah, exactly. Like, like just where they, you know, they kind of things can seem good, but you know they're not going to stay that way. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so this is dealing with sort of characters from those types of universes, but as they hit 
you know, as they become old, old men. And the one guy obviously has some kind of, you know, background. He gets put into um, an old age home by his daughter. And then a, an old, uh, an old enemy shows up who wants to deal with un, unfinished business. Right. Um, who's also a senior. That's a, that, that seems very, that seems very interesting. And yeah, I mean, like that whole thing became, and not even you know, the, the Guy Ritchie films are not even the worst defenders. That whole thing, particularly in the early 2000s became a bit ridiculous and it became like so uh, over the top and so ridiculous and so tiresome, that kind of British gangster trope. But like you say, there's those ones from the 80s and 90s and also some of the, some of the ones like Gangster Number One and the uh, Sexy Beast and things like Sexy that. Sexy Beast That's, is a great example, yeah. They're, they're really great British gangster films and I think like get forgotten about because there is all these kind of comic booky East End like kind of Ugh. <laughs> yeah, Cockney <laughs> slang or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so and those, those, those like always felt like they were saying, like they had more to say than what they were saying, right? Like they yeah. just felt like they, they were, they were carrying bigger messages. Yeah. Um, and you know, no, like Guy Ritchie's films are fine, right? I don't have a problem with them or anything like that. Um, they've obviously, you know, what was on the surface. And I felt like those other movies did, like Sexy Beast definitely does. Yeah, uh, Gangster Number One does. I think even I'd have to watch it again. But the you know the craze from probably late eighties, early nineties. Um, I think that was Friday for sure. So yeah, that's that, that, yeah. I mean that's it's pretty uh, decent, decent film as well. But uh, particularly Long Good Friday and uh, Sexy Beast, I think those are real kind of if there's kind of gangst, British gangster classics, they would be to the, to the top tier, kind of. And Gangster Number One as well, actually, is is, is it's high up there. It's got some really cool stuff in it. Yeah. Um, even visually, I always thought it was really well done. It's a very stylishly shot film, yeah. Without feeling like the style is stepping on the story, or at least that's my memory of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are they, the titles of? Do, do those two films have titles? The the, the Mars movie and the <laughs> British Revenge movie. Yeah, one's called uh, Mars. <laughs> <laughs> just you're really nailing the the, the the Mars thing there, just going right at it. <laughs> this is I'm planting my flag. I'm going to make the great Mars movie. So I'll make it Mars exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, and then the other one is uh, called Rec Room. Rec Room. Yeah. And they're, they're, man, I, they both, they both are, you know, quite different, but they feel like they're dealing with some of the same types of things. And yeah. I just think they, I could do a lot with both of them. Like the, uh, as a director, I think they have the, a lot of really cool challenges for me. Yeah. Um, but also have enough familiarity and stuff that I think I can really add to. Um, and the one is a little bit more of a, you know, dial, like when I said it was like a play, it's like a little bit more dialogue character driven, right? Um, in a confined space. And the other one is a little bit more, uh, you know, dark, bitter and violent or definitely goes to that place. It's got a few, you know, good dry comic moments in it. Yeah. Um, well, like very black humor, but 
but it ends up kind of being a tragedy. Mm-hmm. What well, both movies sound um, very interesting. I would definitely be interested in checking them out as, as well as the, the other uh, films you're producing, the, the, the Rob Grant films and the uh, True Fiction. They all sound like um, films that I'd be looking forward to checking out. Yeah, well, I think, I don't know, man. I, I, this, I, I hope that we're creating a small movement out here of, mm. you know, making and helping get made, you know, good genre films where the, because I don't know if you guys come across this because we come across this a bit on the, on the creation side, especially when we're dealing with government agencies <coughs> that sometimes provide funding for us. Yeah. Is they, they tend to, there tends to be an assumption that the genre stuff is, you know, going straight for the B video stuff and doesn't have as much to say as a drama for, for the creator. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's the, I, I obviously don't think that's accurate whatsoever. But, you know, you can't sort of tell that to, you kind of have to prove it to someone, not just tell them that that's not true. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I've talked to some UK genre filmmakers and I, I think there's a lot of stuff like that. They have a lot of problems in that respect of the kind of government money, the government bodies that, that fund um, a, a lot of movies tend to give money out to kind of the country house movie or the kitchen sink drama movie and you know ignore the genre movies yeah yeah because to me it's like you know it's just personal filmmaking but that's the the clothes that it's wearing yeah and lots of (laughs) genre movies have way more personal Yeah, so yeah, lots of genre movies have a message and tell a, can tell a personal story. Any Just, type of story, man. Like, yeah. It's about the person telling it. But yeah, it's, I always... And, and like, secondly, like, if, if you think of... If you, you know, the royal you, thinks about sort of 10 movies that they would want to watch over and over again, you know, mm. I would guess that eight of them are going to be defined as genre films. Absolutely. You know, there might be a Wong Kar Wai film in there or something like that, but there's probably going to be a John Carpenter film or, you know, something like that that will make up the rest of them. Yeah. I I, I mean, I I would definitely agree with that. And I think for a lot of people that would be the case. I think so too. Um, And you can, because the rules to the two genre are, you know, fairly well defined, right, for each type of film like a horror film has a set of rules that you know or whatever subgenre of horror film it is yeah <clears throat> it's it's got a set of story tropes so finding ways to kind of you know bend those or play with them or evolve them in some way is actually very hard and you have to be really creative to do that yeah. I, I absolutely i mean and that's the other thing the genre of audiences tend to be, you know, whether it's uh, a sci-fi audience or a horror audience, tend to be amongst the most savvy sort of audiences. So I've seen 
the tropes and you know, I've seen all the genre beats before and it takes a lot to surprise them and a lot to you know subvert those tropes and be like oh I've not I've not seen that before I've not seen you know a horror movie take that certain thing to this place or whatever so I mean there's a, a you know a lot of talent to do that to make a, an audience like that be like oh I've, that's 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 something new on me. I hadn't thought of somebody doing that before. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I don't think it always gets the credit, or at least it doesn't often get the credit in the present that it sometimes does later on in hindsight. I, exactly, exactly. The, yeah, you. The, it's kind of what, like what we were talking about earlier with the the Cronenberg movies. Of they might have not got the respect back in the day, but now some of the movies that are like 40, you know, 40 years old that almost you know, are now kind of being looked back on as genre classics and, and given the respect now, but, and it's probably the same, a lot of the films that are coming out now, probably it's the same thing. They'll be given respect in 10 years time, but not necessarily right now when it's, you know, it's coming out and it's. And I, I have a feeling that horror is going to get, uh, like a whole bunch of people are going to jump into horror or are right now that we don't know about are mm. jumping into the horror genre specifically. <clears throat> and they're going to be making, you know, quote, art house horrors or whatever you want to call them, social message horror films. Um, and that will be, it'll be the same as, you know, the Tarantino knockoffs after that for the, you know, the following three to five years after, um, was it Reservoir Dogs or... Uh, yeah. Or uh, sort of Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, yeah. yeah. Right, and they just there was a whole bunch of these films that came out. I think that's what that what we're going to see over the next couple of years with horror films. I think so. I think it. horror seems to be getting much more acceptance right now. I, I think especially on the, the back of the success of It Follows and Get Out, which some people debate whether it's pure horror or more of thriller, whatever, satire. Yeah. Uh, but there seems to be certain films in the last couple of years that have got like a lot of uh, kudos <coughs> and the Babadook would probably be another one. Um, so there does seem to be more acceptance for horror at this moment. And you do feel like that's going to peak at some point And then it's like you say, there's going to be a lot of kind of knockoff and you know, aping of certain films. I think it's happening right now just based on the chatter at markets. Mm. when i go to markets and just the way people talk because uh, some of these guys I'm not, I'm not sure if they actually like movies <laughs> um but you know they're in the business and they have way they're, they're part of the machine that gets films made to some degree uh and i hear a lot of talk about you know you know this is a film like get out it's about you know this social thing mm. um but it's a horror film or whatever and it, it you know i guess it doesn't worry me but it's definitely a noticeable a trend. noticeable conversation or trend mm -hmm. that seems to be about to happen. Well, that's, I mean, it's good in a way that horror is being more accepted, but there is that thing of you don't want loads of people who don't really give a shit about mm -hmm. horror, like jumping on the bandwagon. Usually those, those, you can spot that though, can't you? Don't you think? Like, yeah. Sorry, I know. You just reminded me, one of my other favorite films is Texas uh, Chainsaw Massacre. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah. It's a fucking amazing, it's a masterpiece, I think. Yeah, and 
I think um, the, what you were talking about earlier about uh, brevity and um, it's just a, I think it's a masterpiece in terms of just the editing and the sound design, like making, sound design. Yeah. making you think you're seeing and, you know, like so much more viscera, so much more horrible shit than you're actually seeing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you're not seeing a ton, but it feels like you're seeing a lot. Yeah. Nice. And the sound design is a big part of that. And that the, um, while I was making, um, while I was making Knuckleball, my, uh, the editor, Rob Grant, yeah. was editing, uh, uh, we just finished another film that he directed and I was I helped write and produce um, called Fake Blood. But anyways, he, I was at his place and he gave me uh, Leatherface's autobiography. Oh, I forgot right. the, the actor's name, but uh, um, Gunnar Hansen. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I was reading his autobiography while I was making Knuckleball, uh, and he keeps talking about empathy towards Leatherface, and I think that I think that did creep into it a little more than I realized. Yeah, sort of the empathy for the the bad the bad guys essentially. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, th- there is a certain it's something I haven't really noticed before, but. I, I, remember somebody saying that recently to, to me about the kind of childlikeness of um of Leatherface and it's his his the other members of his family actually seem more evil than him. He just seems to be kind of doing their bidding in a way. Yeah, he's like the kid they make do the chores. Yeah. Take out the garbage or whatever, you know. And if they and if he said take they, out they, the garbage, it's like kill those people. <laughs> That's right. Cut them up, and we might eat them or make a lamp, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the pure nihilism of that film is fantastic. Like it's yeah. whew, staggering. Well, um, I think that we we wrap that wrap it up here. Um, it's been a great chat. Um, I wish you all the best luck uh, with Requiem and Mars exclamation mark, um, <laughs> which uh, I definitely wanted to see it come out like that. Um, and yeah, it's uh, thanks for being on the show, Mike. Oh yeah, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate the you know the interest and the support and Knuckleball. Um, it's because of stuff like this, you know, people find out about these films. We're small films, and it's hard for us to you know rise above the chatter so I, I appreciate the interest and I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the film so thanks a lot and it was so that was my guest Mike Peterson there who I'd like to thank very much for appearing on this month's episode and as always I would like to thank you listener for tuning in to another episode of New Horror Express that's all for this month Remember to tune in next month when I'll be chatting to Australian film director Luke Shanahan. Also, remember you can always tune in to any of the previous episodes on newhorrorexpress.com, on Stitcher, on iTunes. You can give us a like on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Until next time, that's all for now.